Welcome to the sixth episode of the Product Weekend podcast, powered by Productize. This is where we meet the inspiring people behind great products. My name is Romoita, and today we have with us Roshan Gupta, Group Product Manager at Google. Roshan has an extensive experience in the software industry, having started as software engineer and now working in product management for the past 15 years. After graduating from MIT, he has worked in companies like Oracle, Yahoo, Facebook and Google. Besides being a successful PM, Roshan is also a father, a traveler and a passionate storyteller. By the end of the episode, you have some books and travel recommendations from him. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. When and why did you move to Lisbon? Yeah, so uh, I moved, uh, my family moved uh, back in May, so two mm -hmm. and a half months ago. Okay, uh, so still uh, some long vacations. Yes, for now. I'm, I'm a, it feels like vacation, mm -hmm. uh, especially with my, my kids uh, not in school yet, so it's, mm -hmm. it's one big vacation. Okay. Um, But why I moved, uh, for my wife and I, we wanted to live abroad for a long time. Um, Before that, you were living in the U.S. Yeah, so uh, I was in Seattle for a long time. And mm -hmm. prior to that, I've done everything from Austin, Texas to Silicon Valley. I, I joke, you know, there's a couple cities in the U.S. that, um, you know, all the people in tech kind of rotate between. Mm -hmm. So Seattle, the Bay Area, yeah. Austin are some of the popular ones. Nice. Um But I was in Seattle, uh, and my wife and I always wanted to live abroad. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where, you know, you have it in the back of your mind as a goal, but but the timing is not all. There's not timing right. is never right. Yeah. Uh, and and I think the big lesson of COVID was uh, the timing will never be right, but you mm -hmm. don't know what the future holds. And yeah. so, you know, going through that, it you know, knock on wood, it was okay for my family and I, but you know, it made us think what sort of dreams or goals are we putting off for the future mm -hmm. that we should we should do now yeah. and you know for yeah. us it was moving abroad um, we travel a lot and the perspectives you get mm -hmm. uh, really uh, broaden your thinking that was something important uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to give to my kids yeah um, honestly as a PM the more perspectives you have the more you realize you know uh, you're not the typical user there are users across mm -hmm. the world with different um, expectations and behaviors. So it's just good for so many reasons. Yeah. Um, but that's and, why we moved to Lisbon. Mm -hmm. And that traveling, it's something that has been with you and your wife for a long time. Has um, the kids been a constraint on that? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you think the kids would be a constraint, but we were, pr we love travel so much. We were mm -hmm. really good about taking them to trips even before they probably remember. Yeah. Um, and so I think it could be a constraint, but, you know, uh, we actively made sure it wasn't mm -hmm. a constraint. Um, yes. And we've taken, you know, our one-year-old on like 12-hour plane mm -hmm. ride, you know, across the world. So, yeah. uh, so he's for sure not afraid of, of flights. Not afraid of flights. You know, uh, they've slept in like strange rooms. They've slept in closets and cribs. <laughs> You know, we've all crammed onto one bed. Okay. You know, it it uh, it builds resilience. All the yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it's definitely something we enjoy doing and nice. played a big role in us moving to Lisbon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And w what's so special about Portugal? Why did you choose Lisbon? Uh, so we've been here about six, seven years ago, mm -hmm. 
and we loved it. We fell in love with it. Um, I, I was living in the Bay Area at the time, and uh, Lisbon itself, downtown Lisbon, or I guess maybe uh, classic Lisbon, mm-hmm. uh, is like a mini San Francisco. I mm-hmm. mean, complete with the bridge and the cable yeah. cars. Uh, but it was beautiful. And, uh, you know, I remember, I think this was six or seven years ago, just showing up to Lisbon, and it turned out to be the final of the Euro Cup. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was the final game with Portugal, and I think it was Italy. The um, Euro Cup 2004? Was it 2004? No, this was a... Uh, okay, I might be losing track, but it was okay. a final. Oh, but with France. Maybe it was uh, yeah. with France. Yeah, and, yeah. and Portugal won, and yeah, we were here, yes, yes. and <laughs> you know, just sitting in a restaurant, and you could just hear the cheers coming from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it was one of those magical moments where it was beautiful weather, like super nice people, amazing food. You know, you mm-hmm. just felt the energy in the city. Yeah. Um, and so from that day, we had always known like mm-hmm. Lisbon would be a place we would. Actually, you got a super special day for all Portuguese people. I'm even getting chills just <laughs> thinking about that day. It was it was amazing. Yeah, uh, we we care a lot about soccer. It's yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm in Seattle, and uh, mm-hmm. we're longtime Seattle Sounders fans, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know, soccer slash football fans in yeah. the U.S., which is growing, but not typical. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But nice. we love Portugal from that moment on, and mm-hmm. you know, when we thought about where in Europe we'd move to. Mm-hmm. Um, Portugal just made sense. We love yeah. the culture. We love the weather. We love yeah. the ocean. She made yeah. a great decision. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, and what's your take on the Portuguese tech and startup ecosystem? Did you have any contact? So I have a sense that there's a budding scene here. Um, I haven't plugged in yet. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I've been so focused on, on my team at Google yep. and just preparing for the move. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know there's, you know, uh, a large product conference, there's a large web conference, mm-hmm. um, there's startup Lisbon, mm-hmm. um, you know, my wife, uh, had worked for a company who had, you know, one of their headquarters in Lisbon. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, there's a lot of international companies building yes. tech hubs. Yeah. yeah. And it's growing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the sense I get is Lisbon is sort of in that early stage of, you know, uh, entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. and realizing, you know, the talent they have and what can be done on a global scale. Yeah. Um, and so while I haven't dived into it, I can, I can mm-hmm. feel that sense. And I, I was in Silicon Valley back in 2000 during the bubble. Yeah. Um, and I can feel that same excitement and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, anticipation. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to, to dig yeah. into the scene. Nice. No, how, how long have you been working uh, remotely? Um, I am not actually working remotely. Uh, okay. So uh, I was running uh, the Google Messages team at Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been there about six years. Uh, and so as part of this move, uh, I've decided to come to Portugal, take a break and spend time with family and then figure out my, my next step. And so mm-hmm. uh, I'm still at that phase right now, which okay. is, okay. you know, it might be another team within Google, maybe one that's based in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be striking out on my own and, you know, trying to build a business. Um, I haven't fully worked it out yet, Okay. Uh, okay. but it's a great environment to, you mm-hmm. know, amidst all that excitement and anticipation, it's a yeah, great environment yeah. to explore. That's great. Yeah, that's great. All right. Let's dive into your path a little bit, which is quite fascinating. 
let's start from the beginning. Um, back in your teen years, what were your ambitions back then? Did you have a kind of a master plan for your career? I wouldn't say a master plan. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, depending on what age you you sampled, mm -hmm. uh, I could have been a fireman, an astronaut. Mm -hmm. Those were the earlier days. Yeah. Let's know. say the couple of years before university. I mean, you know, one of the things is I'm interested in so many things. Uh, I'm just curious about everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of things interest me. I mean, you know, I uh, my junior year of high school, I was researching um, aeronautical universities hmm. uh, because I love flying and everything to do with yeah. flying. And, you know, I just wanted to see if I could build a career. Um, mm -hmm. But what I would say is uh, my love of technology has always been there. My, you know, mother was a computer programmer back in the very mm -hmm. early days doing okay. COBOL okay. Nice. Uh, and things like that. Uh, and so at a very young age, you know, we had an you had IBM early PC, contact with everything. you know, with the floppy drives. Mm -hmm. um, I remember as a kid, like, you know, taking out books on basic and, you know, making little calculators. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd say the one thing is I've always known I was drawn to technology. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. while I had a lot of different interests, I think um, it became pretty it clear. Computer science, with, computer yeah. engineering. Mm -hmm. um, nice. And when I was in high school, the Internet just started coming out. And then as I headed off toward college, the, the bubble really started. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was, it was very easy to get swept up in that. Yeah. 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 So you ended up studying computer science at MIT? Yeah, did computer and science and engineering. Yeah, MIT is like a dream university for many people, not only in the US, but worldwide. Yep. Um, was it also a, a dream for you to study there? Um, it was, you know, like anything, there were some really great things. And then, you know, some things that are okay. Um, mm -hmm. What I'd say is... Uh, You definitely have a lot of opportunity to learn from some of the, the best. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, you know, you have the opportunity to learn from some of the best. Um, you know, it opens up a lot of doors, especially early on in your mm -hmm. career. Um, but what I'll say is, you know, there's more to college than just learning the academics. Uh, yeah. When you get out in the real world and start working in jobs, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so much of it, so much of a job of a PM is relationship building and, and so many other that, soft skills that you felt still lacked. Uh, at MIT. It's not that it lacked, but I think, you know, MIT did a great job of teaching a lot of the academic skills, mm -hmm. but it's not a school that teaches you all the skills. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, but it's rare to find an institution that teaches yeah, you yeah. all of the skills. So it was great for, for what it did. Uh, mm -hmm. It opened up a lot of doors. Yeah. Um, but also, like, you know, they, it's, a, it's a selection bias. Um, mm -hmm. They bring in people who are, you know, work hard, overachievers. Yeah. And so in that environment, they generally do well, but that's the mm -hmm. people they bring in. Yeah. Um, Maybe if the, that group went to another university, the results wouldn't be that much different. different. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. so it was a great institution and like anything, but you, maybe also for yourself to make the, the right connections with these people that were already high achievers and people with yes. great ambitions. Right. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, you're, you're so young at the time that 
you do some networking, but uh, at least at the time you don't totally grasp the value of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's changed a little bit these days. Yeah, probably it was uh, also yeah, different but, times as well. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. not too long ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. But so you, uh, if I understood correctly, you after you finished your bachelor, you started working as a software engineer. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, how was that experience? I loved it. Um, partially, I loved it because, uh, you know, when I graduated, it was back in 2000. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, the Silicon Valley bubble was still happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but a year after I started working, you know, it, it would it would bust. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, coming out of, well, frankly, MIT, you know, with a software engineering degree, there was a lot of competition for talent. Yeah. Uh, and so right out of college, you know, I had companies flying me out and putting me in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, certainly nice hotels for a college student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then it was exciting. I joined a startup at the time called uh, Zaplet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a stealth startup and it was exciting. And, you know, I met some great people there who are, you know, mm-hmm. friends to this day. Um, but it was just exciting to be part of that excitement, anticipation, mm-hmm. feeling like, you know, you're tackling the world, you're, you're building you're something. Building stuff, yeah. um, and it was it was a great first experience. And I, you know, there are lessons I take away from just that first company, that first year mm-hmm. uh, that still serve me today. What would be some of those lessons? Yeah. So, we, you know, one of the, the, the things we were talking about, you know, uh, in some of the questions before mm-hmm. uh, was, you know, what's an example of a leader? Uh, mm-hmm. that I look up to or that inspired me. Um, and so at Zaplet, you know, I had my first manager, mm-hmm. uh, this this uh, guy named Anil. Uh, and he was just my first manager, you know, out of college. But the way he led was with empathy and he was very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a very specific story because it's, nice. the, it's the one that sticks out of my head. Yeah. You know, we were in the boom at the time, and then mm-hmm. a year later, there came performance reviews, and then you know, uh, hopefully, a salary increase. Yeah. Uh, and a year into the company, the market had definitely turned, and venture capitalists weren't investing as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, frankly, there wasn't a lot of money for raises. Uh, the company needed to save that money to you know stay afloat. Yeah. Uh, and I just remember my manager, you know getting his team into a room and just telling them exactly what I just told you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there this was no situation. Yeah. This not is the situation. Straightforward, anything. not trying to hide, you know, treating the adults in the room like adults, which should be mm-hmm. obvious, yeah. but oftentimes it's not. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, treating everyone on his team that he managed like a partner with him in mm-hmm. the company versus, you know, someone that just works for the company. Yeah. And that lesson, Mm -hmm. you know, carries into how I run my own teams, which is everyone plays a critical role and everyone can handle the truth and everyone deserves to know, you know, the mission of the team and what we're doing and why Mm -hmm. and what the challenges are and we'll solve them together. Yeah. Yeah. That's super important. Yeah. And I've patterned my own leadership off of that one example, but that was 20 years ago, one manager Mm -hmm. for, you know, less than a year but to this mm. day it has an impact on yeah, yeah yeah the impact of leaders it's something of managers it's something super important yeah for mm. sure 
So why did you go back to study after after this experience? So I graduated in 2000, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there was an option at MIT to stay an additional year, um, mm -hmm. complete a thesis, and you can get a master's degree. So okay. don't have to take any entrance exams, you know, don't have to do a two-year master's, just one year. So it's a pretty... Okay. Okay. Low, low effort, high input, high, high impact. It's exactly right. Um, and so then the question is, why did I not do that uh, when I graduated in 2000? I yeah. could have stayed another year. And it had to do with the fact there was a bubble going on. And, and everyone was Everyone was becoming millionaires to, yeah. supposedly overnight. Not, mm -hmm. not true. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I'm glad I took that year and, and, and worked in the Valley. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, when the market crashed, I ended up trying to find another job. But I just decided, you know what, like the environment is such that I should go back and just finish that mm -hmm. uh, degree. They, they let me, you know, defer for a year. So I was yeah. able to go back and finish it. Okay. Um, I will say, uh, having worked for a year in the real world and then going back to do a master's mm -hmm. uh, was fascinating. Because, yeah. you know, not that I wasn't interested in all the things I was learning before. Mm -hmm. But you just realize you get one perspective in university, and that's a very different perspective when you're working. Yeah. And I wish there was a way for people to get a mm -hmm. little bit of perspective of working and then go go to school. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that perspective also gives you different eyes to look at the things that you're learning. You that's right. Understand better why you're actually learning that thing. That sometimes it looks like, yeah, I will never use this in my life, but maybe with those eyes of experience gives you, okay, this may be applied in this part of my life, right? That's right. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Nice. So after the going back and finishing your master's, uh, you landed a job at Oracle, also a dream company for, for many. How different was that experience from your first one at Zaplet? Yeah, so Oracle was great. Um, you know, I was doing my, my one-year master's, Uh, they had a career fair, and, and different companies like Oracle would come on campus and try to recruit. Uh, and so I remember, um, I forgot who interviewed me, but it was pretty high up at Oracle. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I went into a room, and he was sitting across from me, and he has uh, my resume in his hand. And he puts the resume down. He's like, you know what? I don't even need to read this. He's like, I could just tell, you know, from glancing at it, you're the, the type of person we want at Oracle. And he's like, you know, just basically made me feel like, you know, I was special. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it was flattering. And I said, you know, well, hey, I hadn't been really considering Oracle, but, you know, he just glanced on my resume and he, you know, mm -hmm. didn't even need to see more. No. How do you look back at that experience? Well, uh, I didn't, I only needed like another hour to look back with a different perspective. So. Mm -hmm. I walk out and, you know, maybe it was an hour, it was, it was a couple of days, but I, mm -hmm. I walk out and I said, you know what, like if Oracle thinks I'm so great, I'm so great, the, then maybe mm -hmm. they're great. Uh, and so I kind of made up my mind to go join Oracle mm -hmm. and maybe it was a, a couple of days or a week later, I found out that pretty much every MIT student who went in there, he said the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, it's sort of a smart strategy, which is, you know, you have a pool of people who are probably generally good. Yeah. And so rather than sit there and try to, you know, interview, like it was mm -hmm. just easier to just, you know, hire. 
And yeah. they, they can work mm-hmm. it out on the other end. Um, so anyways, I thought that was an interesting story. So that's, that's mm-hmm. how I joined, joined Oracle. They, they made me feel special. Yeah. Um, but once I was in Oracle, um, it was great. Again, I had gone from a startup to a big company. Um, it was, it was fascinating to see. What I will say is I started to get the itch, uh, to switch from software engineering to, uh, product management. Okay. Um, and did you work with, like, there are there product managers that you work with at Oracle that inspired you in some way? Um, or was it more about the function itself? I think it was. I did software engineering at Zaplet, which mm-hmm. was that first startup, and yeah. I loved it. Um, I did software engineering, you know, at Oracle. And at first, I was in a group that was based in New Hampshire, and then mm-hmm. you know, was there for about a year and a half. And then I went to uh, California and worked on a different team, an e-commerce team. Uh, and while I liked software engineering. Uh, we would get requirements from, you know, PMs. I had no clue what a PM was at that time. Mm-hmm. And it they was would just ha- the guy that was bringing the, the yes, list of Yes, it was not even like, I don't think I ever met them. Okay. It was just somehow, whether it was email, I feel like someone like hand-delivered like mm-hmm. a piece of paper to me. Yeah. <laughs> and on it was a list of requirements. And, and I remember, you know, just being a bit curious of what, uh, you know, what PMs did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, I was I was doing the engineering work, but I just my my nature is I'm just curious about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were questioning why we're building this here, exactly. And, not there. and I think that's mm-hmm. a common path, which yeah. is as software engineers, you're often building something, but then you wonder about you know is you know they always say you know engineers you know build it the right way, but then PMs figure out what's the right thing to build. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the truth of the matter is. It's not that engineers can't think of what's the right thing to build. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, that's one of the ways I lead is I involve everybody on the team in lots of decisions. Ultimately, you have to have decision makers. Mm-hmm. But if you're working in UX, that doesn't mean you only know how to do UX design. If you're, if you're an engineer, that doesn't mean you only know how to code. You yeah. know, code. You can, mm-hmm. you know, product strategy. You, un, you know, yeah. These are smart people who understand problems and, and know how to tackle problems. Yeah. And so I think for me, you know, I was an engineer, but yes, I started wondering about these other parts of the business. Some of mm-hmm. it was curiosity and some of it was putting a lot of blood, sweat and tears, building something and wondering, is this ever going to matter? Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think this, um, like right now, the, the concepts of product trios, having the designer, engineer and PM working together, it's something relatively new or back then there was all already something like that um how have you seen that evolution from your days at oracle until yeah now as a pm um i think it's still generally all over the map i want to say maybe mm-hmm. trending toward best practices of having that trio Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason i say I, th- I think it's all over the map is you know at oracle and eventually i joined yahoo Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are these magical PMs who, you know, mythical PMs I never met, mm-hmm. you know, and I would get requirement docs to, to, to build things. And so there wasn't that tight collaboration, at yeah. least that I was aware of, mm-hmm. you know, and, and partially maybe I was junior at the time, but the truth is, mm-hmm. um, I just think the, the different functions were separated. Okay. Um, I went to a startup later on, you know, uh, called trial pay mm-hmm. and, 
you know, there was engineering and PMs working closely together, but bringing design and user research was something new. Mm-hmm. You okay. know, and some of that is their startup and, you know, there's kind of the growing pains. Yeah. And so if I think Maybe about... they're also like sitting all in the same office, like chair next to the other. There thing. is, but the sort of importance of having sort of these multiple functions work together to figure out what to build mm-hmm. um, is less common than you think. And so I think that comes with sort of a maturity of a product organization. Mm-hmm. And so when I say it's all over the map, I think, you know, I still hear of lots of startups that are just now building out their product function and, you know, they're on that journey to figure out, you know, you need not just a product manager, not mm-hmm. just an engineer, not just a UX designer. It's it's all of them working together. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. At Google, it goes beyond that. We have data scientists. We have user researchers. Yeah. Um, also product operations. Yep. And they all have a role in making mm-hmm. a product successful. Yeah. Uh, and the more you isolate those functions, uh, when it comes to deciding the direction of a product, mm-hmm. uh, the harder you make it for yourself later on. Mm-hmm. Um, right. right. So this, your path from Oracle until you, you were saying that it started hitching that uh, yes. little yeah. like passion that's right. Growing passion for product manager, but yeah. you after Oracle, you were still at uh, Yahoo as software engineer, That's and right. only then you moved to Trailpay. How yeah. was that path, and how did that yeah. passion grow over time? So I was at Oracle, and I just knew I wanted to try uh, something different. And I, again, didn't exactly know what product management was, but mm-hmm. it felt like I knew software engineering wasn't the right place for me long term, although I love it and i still love it to this day you know uh it, it feels like you're you're building something um it's probably a bad analogy but uh it's the analogy i like which is it, it it's the closest i felt to being an artist where you take these little building blocks and you put them together uh, mm-hmm. and you have to have a vision in your mind of what it's going to look like and you take these building blocks put them together and it works mm-hmm. uh, and i love that thrill but i just knew that it wasn't for me long term um when I went to Yahoo, it was because that manager uh, who was at that first company who inspired mm-hmm. me was, you know, uh, leading the engineering team uh, at, at Yahoo for this mm-hmm. this team I was okay. going to join. Okay. And so I joined and, you know, I was going to work for him for a little bit and then he was going to help me transition to product management. Okay. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, you know, within a couple months of me joining, he ended up moving on to a different opportunity. Okay. Um but I was at Yahoo for a while as a software engineer, um, but I was not able to scratch that itch of being mm-hmm. a PM. Um, but I joined Yahoo with the anticipation of transitioning to product management. Okay. Um, I did find it difficult, uh, and I think a lot of people in software engineering and maybe other professions find the same challenge today, which is, you know, how do you break into product management, uh, especially if you aren't sort of a product manager right out the door? Um, and it's tough. And I, I remember mm-hmm. picking my opportunities based on the fact that I could become a PM. When I when I joined my next company after mm-hmm. Yahoo, it was a, a startup where I was number 15, something like that. Mm-hmm. But the same thing, I joined with the expectations set up front. I would do engineering for six months, but then I would switch to product management. And even there, um, you know, once I was an engineer, you know, I, I basically had to threaten to leave. Uh, mm-hmm. Before they finally gave me a chance to be a product manager, okay. that was a um, tough path. It was it was a tough path, and it's you know I like to think I was a good engineer, and so they liked having me as an engineer. But yeah. um, you know, 
I think of it from their perspective. How do you know who would be a good product manager? Um, mm -hmm. Some of those things, you know, again, product is so nebulous and ambiguous that, you know, ask a PM, you know, how do you define what you do? It's, it's hard for us to do it. But mm -hmm. then how do you know someone else will be a good PM? I mean, if you can't even define what it is, then how do you look for those qualities? Yeah. You know, I've gotten a better sense now in my career, but mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's a hard path to break in. From the perspective of the, of the company, don't you think it was more about they didn't want to lose you as an engineer more than they were afraid that you would fail as a PM? That's what I tell myself, that <laughs> I was a spectacular engineer. <laughs> but... Uh, Yeah, like from I mean even from like tech salary reports and these kind of things. Yeah, good engineers earn more than PMs typically. Yeah, um, yeah. So they are more sought. Yeah, than than the PMs. It could be true for sure. Um, you know, at Google, there there are so many people interested in product that you know they have a whole you know program internally dedicated. Mm -hmm. uh, to helping people learn about what product is. And there's a whole formalized path on how to, you know, become a PM. switch. The, they call it a ladder switch to become a PM. Okay. So um, this is back in 2007 when I joined that startup. And so, mm -hmm. you know, things were maybe less sophisticated then and it was a startup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, sure. you know, I'd say even to this day, like, you know, there's so many people who want to get into product mm -hmm. uh, and it, it, it can be a tough path yeah. to, to break in. So back then at trial pay when you were fighting your yeah. way to, to becoming a, a PM, did you do any kind of training? How did you learn or um, how did you become a, a good PM? Yeah. Um, there was no formal training. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you a story about how I, you know, uh, went to my next next job. Uh, mm -hmm. related to that, but I'll, I'll save that for, for a little bit. Yeah. Um, there was no formal training. And in fact, the way it worked was, um, you know, the head of product at the time said, okay, well, here's one feature we want to build. Um, PM that. Um, that literally was it. Uh, mm. And so uh, I remember it was a small feature and uh, I wrote probably like a three-page document on all the things needed to implement this tiny feature. Mm -hmm. um, and my ability to create mockups, my, my skill set there uh, was abysmal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I spent awful amount of time in Microsoft Paint, literally <laughs> like, you know, using the little eraser and little pencil and like drawing pixels and erasing pixels. <laughs> so I put probably, you know, 10, 15, 20 hours into this, this PRD mm -hmm. for a tiny feature. Um, but I remember when I did it, you know, the, the head of product at the time was really impressed with it. You know, I invested a lot of time, but I mm -hmm. got positive feedback as a result. And, and that just encouraged me to keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, and I learned a lot uh, at that at trial play. And so mm -hmm. even though I joke I had to fight my way to product management, mm -hmm. um, it was also a great place where they just needed work to get done. And so for someone who was hungry to learn. Mm -hmm. um, There's always stuff there for was you opportunity. to pick up. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and I did everything from product management. I started the sales engineering team. Mm -hmm. um, for, for someone like me who's curious about a lot of things, Uh, and, and wants to sort of dip their hands in everything. Um, mm -hmm. That startup was a great place for me to try a little bit of everything. And 
you know, that was definitely an inflection point for me. It's when my product management career started back in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was definitely an inflection point for me. Right. So you were doing all these different things. Some of the, the tasks you were doing were more product management. How would you define the product management role? Yeah, at that time or, or now? Well, maybe both. <laughs> yeah. What are the differences from what you thought of back then and yes. to what you consider it now? Yeah, it, you know, um, actually, I think that's a good question, which is how does my view of what a product manager does, how has that evolved over mm-hmm. time? Yeah. Um, what I'd say is when I was at trial pay, uh, I had been an engineer. Um, I was a product manager and, and on the side, because it's a startup, you know, I had started up the sales engineering team. You know, the sales engineering was really interesting because I would get on calls with clients and they have a problem and, mm-hmm. you know, it was my job to sort of understand what they were trying to accomplish or what their issues were, understand what our solution was and figure out how to bend our solution to satisfy mm-hmm. their problem. Yeah. And what I learned there was dealing with customers and patients yeah. and mm-hmm. hearing them out and practicing empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were so many, I remember, you know, I don't I forget who it was, but there was a client who was notorious for getting upset on calls mm-hmm. uh, and getting frustrated and, you know, yelling or, you know, raising their voice. Yeah. And so I remember going into a call, you know, with this client kind of, you know, prepped, you know, for that sort of environment. And during the call, you know, she would bring up challenges and I would understand them. I would strip away every, you know, all the emotion and just mm-hmm. say, what is, you know, what is their intent? What are they trying to accomplish? And, you know, it just, it really taught me empathy and listening mm-hmm. and being curious and how you approach things. And, you know, that is a huge part of my success as a product manager. But at yeah. the time, I would have said that's sales engineering. So the type mm-hmm. of PM work I did at trial pay was, you know, very much, uh, you know, writing requirements and, you know, you know, uh, creating mocks at that time. We, mm-hmm. You know, when you're a startup, you don't always have every function defined. You don't always have UX designers, you know, to yeah. do everything. Mm-hmm. So I'd say a PM at the time was someone who took the requirements or of the customer or what problems we were trying to solve and translated yeah. that into a solution which included mm-hmm. at the time some of the UX design, which I was Did not it also for. include like working closer with the developers? Uh, at that, over there, it was really all about working with developers. Okay. And so it was about the PM engineering relationship. Mm-hmm. And so if you had asked me what a PM did at that time, it was, you know, work with engineering, give them requirements, and then help block and tackle for engineering. Mm-hmm. So very narrow view, although um, I didn't realize it at the time, but the work I was doing as a sales engineer is also part of product management, yeah. which is I think that's also a quite relatively common path to go from sales engineer or pre-sales engineer, yeah. or whatever, to product management. Yeah. Because that's the thing. You're dealing with clients. You have to listen to them to understand them. That's but right. you also need to understand the technical part and the product that you're building. That's right. Yeah. You know, if you ask me how to define a product manager now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm still searching for that magical definition that I tell people mm-hmm. uh, and that I truly believe defines a product manager. But the truth is I've heard like six or seven analogies and they all make sense to me. Mm-hmm. But some of the analogies that resonate with me 
Um, there's an article uh, called, uh, I think the title was, The Product Manager is a Janitor. Uh, and mm. that, so far, is one of the best explanations of what a product manager really does. Okay. Um, How a lot did of, you, can you expand on that? So, you know, this article talks about, you know, exactly this. How do you define what a product manager does? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was talking about earlier how so many people want to go into product. Um, but the truth is they view it as often the, the fun parts. You know, mm -hmm. you're at a whiteboard and you're taking ideas and, you know, whiteboarding furiously, you know, mm -hmm. the, the next big product. Uh, and then and then you build it and then you have a big launch and, you know, things are successful. So yeah. people look at product managers as the ones who are sort of directing how things are going to be mm -hmm. done and doing all the fun strategy and, and that yeah. type of thing. And that's a part yeah, of it. Some people also say that the, they are the CEO of the product, like the, the CEO, CEO without the, the negative parts. of. <laughs> yeah, but a CEO has the authority yeah. to yeah, tell people, you need to mm -hmm. do this, you need to do that. Yeah. And product managers don't really have the authority. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, continuing on the, the, the janitor mm -hmm. one, you know, it's not that a product manager job is really a janitor, but if you read the article, he talks about, you know, you'll get a lot of incoming questions and it's your job to route it to the person who can actually answer it the best. Mm. And so, you know, product manager is the person routing things. Okay, there may be mm. things that need to be done that, you know, you know, completing documentation. Now, I can have my engineers do it, but frankly, their time is way more valuable spent on building the product. Mm -hmm. But somebody has to do it. Yeah. And so PMs will often take on you know, these aspects that are all important parts of building a product, but mm -hmm. to make sure that the, the people with the right skill set are always working on the highest value items. And, using the, and the product manager the has to way. clean up the mm -hmm. rest. And it makes it sound less exciting, but mm -hmm. I like that analogy as one of many analogies because people have to realize product management is more than just the strategy and directing where things go. Yeah. Um, it is tough to keep a team motivated. It is tough. You know, I always tell my team and, and the product managers I manage, you know, it's not just about, you know, what is physically in front of you. It's what keeps you up at night. There's mm -hmm. a problem set and someone has to be thinking about it and worrying about it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is maybe why it's close to a CEO. Like mm -hmm. someone has to be thinking about the next set of problems. Someone has to be thinking about you know, we're, we're solving A, B, and C, but I know, you know, problems D, E, and F are lurking in the distance. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what a product manager has to do, and it's exhausting, it can be exhausting at times, but yeah. it's, it's rewarding at the same time, mm -hmm. is keep track of all those while getting your team to focus on what needs to be done at the yeah. moment. So that's one analogy and article I, mm -hmm. I encourage people to find. And on that, uh, that your current definition of product management, how... And actually, maybe on your specific uh, yeah. experience, how do you divide your time and efforts between these things? So yeah. Strategy, learning from clients, working yeah. with the team, motivating the team, getting data. How do you split the time between different things? Yeah. And which are those things? So it, it varies based on... I want to use the word seniority, but that, it's not the right word. But the mm -hmm. role you're playing within an organization, within the product organization, it can vary. So, for example, 
you know, if you have a small team and you're in charge of a specific feature set or set of, you know, user needs, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you'll spend a lot more time maybe talking to the customer and with UX and maybe, you know, uh, your data scientists looking at data and and your user researchers, you know, uh, testing prototypes. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're sort of managing a team of product managers, um, then most of your time is actually spent, you know, maybe thinking of the overall mission, making okay. sure everyone's going in the same direction. Uh, and so, you know, for me personally, you know, the, the team I was running in Google Messages, there was, you know, eight or nine product managers, but, you know, the broader cross-functional team was 300-something people. Okay. Um, That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of people. And so um, I found, you know, and, and it, Google, like you have leads across the board, but people look to the product manager, you know, mm. to to sort of um, kind of be the, the tip of the spear. Let's put it that way. Mm. So, in an organization like that, um, so much of my time uh, is spent getting people excited about the mission and aligned on the mission. Uh, and there's a phrase I use, uh, which is, you know align globally decide locally Um, one of the things i've learned and it's caused me you know it's been uh, a big part of my success is is how to scale as a product manager Uh, this is a a tough thing i see the product managers that i manage um, Mm. who are on the verge of going from managing you know what i call from being a doer to being a manager of doers okay Uh, and scaling is challenging and so so much of my role is i can't be there with every single person on that 300 person team you know helping them make the right decision um Mm -hmm. also frankly i don't think i'm the right person to make those decisions like i can tell you a little bit about code and engineering but can tell you the engineer next to me is a thousand times smarter when it comes to that yeah i have some ideas when it comes to ux design the ux designer thousand times smarter when it comes to that Mm -hmm. um I can't, nor do I want to make those decisions, mm-hmm. but everyone has to understand the mission and not just on the surface. They have to deeply feel it and deeply believe it, yeah. deeply understand it. And when you, when you do that, when, you know, in my role as a product manager now, it's mm-hmm. so much of it is aligning everyone on this mission. But if I do that successfully mm-hmm. and I do it, not just by, you know, saying words, but like really conveying it and this plays mm-hmm. into my passion around storytelling for product managers. Right. But if they really believe it, then you'd be surprised how more often than not they make the right decision. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the only way to scale uh, yeah. in org. I'm curious, maybe this is just a small detail, but on an organization of that scale where you have 300 people to which you need to convince and like, convey the message and make them really believe in the message how do you execute on that it's like on the practical level it's like presentations it's videos it's documentation it's one-on-ones like how do you manage this um it's it's all of it but i'll let me see if i can give a better answer that is more helpful for the audience than Mm -hmm. than you know that generic but true answer Mm -hmm. um so there's a couple things. Um, one of the things that I, I do and, and frankly love to do um, is I invest a lot of personal time onboarding. And so, okay. you know, when anyone, let's use, let's use my last name, Google Messages. When anyone joined that team, um, I would 
have a one-on-one with them or maybe to save some time if you know two or three people joined i would i would do a session with two or three Mm -hmm. people and i would walk them through i had a whole stump deck and i would walk them through the entire mission history of what we did on google messages Mm -hmm. you know what the big strategic challenges were um, how our strategy evolved over time it was a lot of effort you know and for someone at my level i had a lot of things to do but I always invested. It would be minimum of two hours for each talk. Okay. And depending on the person joining, you know, I've done it for eight to 16 hours. Mm-hmm. And I would do it all the time. Okay. Uh, and But what that does is, you know, imagine when you join a company for the very first time or you join a team for the very first time. Um, it's intimidating. You know, even if you're super successful, you join and you want to make a difference. You want to feel like you belong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you want to feel like you're you know, making a contribution, but you don't know the lingo, you don't know what's going on and you shouldn't, it's, you know, Mm -hmm. your first, you know, couple weeks. Yeah. But you take someone who's sort of feeling at their most vulnerable and you sit them down and you walk them through what they probably would pick up in six to 12 months, but you walk them through that entire thing. Mm -hmm. You, you help them understand like the, the reason what they're, you know, why they're doing what they're doing, why it matters. Mm -hmm. And then their role in it. So every time I onboarded someone, I would always explain. So, hey, so you joined as UX. Like, you know, this part of the strategy, UX was critical. And for this next part of the strategy, like, here's why UX is critical. Mm-hmm. But these people would leave these onboarding sessions, you know, understanding what was happening around them and understanding why it mattered and their role in it. Yeah. And you know, they would get pulled in lots of directions over the next, you know, six to 12 months. Mm -hmm. But if they had to choose, especially with some of the senior members I onboarded, if it came down to, you know, investing some of your team's resources, if you're head of design and you have to invest, you know, limited UX designers on, you know, project A, where you just had an entire ramp up and understand the whole arc of everything, or project B, where you still don't really know much about it, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to invest in project A. Yeah. And so that took me years of onboarding, but I would tell this, I would create a narrative. It would be a lot of repetition uh, when I held, you know, all hands or team meetings. And I'd always, always remind people and bring them back to the mission. Mm-hmm. But it started before then. It started with onboarding and everyone okay. who joined okay. and winning the hearts and minds early. And then the one-on-ones. And then every time I did a one-on-one or anytime I was with a group, um, I would always call back to the mission and talk about how what they're doing is critical to the mission. And the truth is it only works if it's authentic and it's a hundred percent authentic because mm-hmm. literally everyone plays a role. If yeah. you can point to someone who's not playing a critical role, then that person is in the wrong role. Yeah. Uh, and so it was not difficult to go all the way down to the QA engineer. Um, and, and explain why that, Yes, because part was so important in a messaging app, you could do the most amazing things, but that very first time your message doesn't get to your family or, or friends, and it was an important message, you're, the entire trust falls apart. Right. Um, mm. But anyways, that, you know, when it comes to aligning these large organizations, um, storytelling and narrative telling and, and helping people piece everything together mm-hmm. is the most important. And yeah. You know, I want to bring it full circle because we were talking about definitions and analogies mm-hmm. for what a PM is. And so, there, you know, the, the PM is a janitor, not the most attractive analogy, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great, great article. Yeah. But the one I've been using more recently is um, a PM is a conductor okay. in an orchestra. 
Mm. And so the conductor can't play the piano, can't play the drums, doesn't know the tuba. But, you know, this team of experts, these teams of musicians still look to the conductor um, about the timing and yeah. they look to this person for direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to Part some degree, they're the heart and soul of things. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's what a PM is. The conductor doesn't, I don't believe, I don't, I don't know how, how orchestras work, but yeah. I don't believe they have the you know, ability to hire and fire musicians or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it's their job to say, you know, I think we need to move, you know, you know, people around or we might mm-hmm. need another tuba player or something like that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it's about winning the hearts and minds. It's about seeing the bigger picture yeah, yeah. and help everyone, you know, play together. So mm-hmm. you, you end up with beautiful music instead of, you know, right, something right. not pleasing. Yeah. Those are two great uh, analogies. One yeah. sexier than the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're either a janitor or you're a conductor. <laughs> All right. You get to choose. Yeah. Uh, actually, I had one more thing about that I got curious because I wasn't aware that as a product leader, you were managing so many people. And what I see as a key part of a product manager role, especially in a smaller team, is to be available to be available for the developers to help them understand, to be available for the designers, for the stakeholders. Uh, How do you balance this? So being available with actually having time to do everything that you have to do when you have so many people that you work with. So there's two things that I think could be helpful uh, for the audience. It's it's always, there's so many little things that go into Mm -hmm. this. It's hard to explain them all, but, but, you know, I'll try to, say two very clear things that could be helpful. Mm-hmm. So the first is, um, you know, in an organization like that, there was definitely a hierarchy of who I spent the most time with. So, you know, even though as a product manager, I oversaw, you know, generally what 300 people across different functions were doing, I didn't have mm-hmm. authority over, you know, what the engineers are doing, what the UX, yeah. you know, uh, team was doing. I, there was a UX lead and there was a head of engineering. And so, uh, you know, one of the, the techniques I use is I create a leads team and I'm very, very tight with that leads team. Okay. Um, and I don't know, I don't think this is actually traditional, but I tend to invite my leads team to everything. So it is not okay. just the product manager, you know, giving an update to stakeholders. It is the leads team, all the leads of all the functions giving an update together because we own okay. it together. It's a mission that we, you know, share together and... You know, uh, there's many things the UX lead mm-hmm. can can tell the product team to help give them direction. Yeah, um, it's yeah. not that it must be the product person or only UX does UX. So we we work on it together. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time with the leads team, and if that whole leads team is aligned, it percolates down. Yeah. So you also give them guidance to be available for the that's right levels. Below, and let's say. in some cases, I'd have a leads team, and then there'd be sort of the 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 second leads team. You can call mm-hmm. it, you know, I don't even know what we called it, but there was like the meta leads, you mm-hmm. know, and then there was like the leads, which was you know uh, the the you know bigger set of people. Okay. And I'd have meetings with them, maybe a little bit less frequently. Obviously, I couldn't invite them to you know all the important meetings. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that was another way to sort of stay in sync with that next layer, and then it percolates down. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one thing is you know have a strong leads team align in that way, and then have that alignment uh, percolate down. Mm-hmm. The second thing is I'd say it's not about the quantity of time; it's about the quality of time. So I would always be available to speak to anybody on the team. 
Uh, and, you know, if someone reached out to me and said, hey, can I set up a one-on-one? I never said no. Um, I would rather put off a meeting with a client than say no to someone on the team because I'm a big believer in if you have a strong product team, you can tackle lots of problems. Uh, mm-hmm. And like that is that is my focus as a PM. It's the team. It's above everything else. Mm-hmm. And when I would meet with that person, I might meet with them once every two months. But when I am meeting with them, I am 100% present. Yeah. I am listening very actively uh, and I hear them out and I empathize with them. And at the end, I I do it naturally because I can't help it. But I remind them of like the big mission we're after. Mm-hmm. And I show excitement and appreciation for their role in it because I'm truly excited and I'm truly appreciative of the role they have in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've gotten feedback that people enjoy these one-on-ones because they leave feeling like, you know, they had a lot of, you know, um, quality time with me. Uh, even though it, if they really look at it, it's not that frequent. Um, mm-hmm. But that's some of the ways to, yeah. to scale yeah. is work with leads and have that percolate down. Mm-hmm. And when you do one-on-ones, even if they're not frequent, be really be present. Mm-hmm. Great. The, that's great advice. All right. Let's go back to where we were in your, in your path going chronologically. All right. I mean, already talked a lot about your, your role at Google. Um, but going back to that time you were at trial pay, then you moved to Bazaar Voice, which was a already bigger company. That's um, right. what made you change from one to the other? So, uh, you know, honestly, it's a simple answer, which is, uh, um, while I love working, you know, uh, uh, People say some people live to work and others work to live. I'm mm-hmm. definitely more of the work to live. So, mm-hmm. you know, moving to Austin was because we wanted to. Uh, I had gotten married at the time, met mm-hmm. my wife at Trial Pay. So, okay. another another reason it's my favorite <laughs> company. Um, but, uh, you know, we decided to move to Austin mostly just for our own lifestyle choice and mm-hmm. wanting an adventure. And so uh, the move to Bizarre Voice was mostly, you know, we're moving to Austin. We need to find a job down there. Mm-hmm. Um, Bizarre Voice at the time, Austin was still growing as a tech hub, um, but Bizarre Voice was known as, you know, one of the, the like, well-known companies down there, startup companies. Mm-hmm. Um, they had also won, you know, best place to work a couple years in a row. Oh, great. Um, and it was great. It was So it was, was a, great a bit for the lifestyle. Yes, it was mostly mm-hmm. about, we want to move to Austin, so now let's find a job there. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and Bizarre Voice was the one. Okay, great. And one thing I saw that I think it may be interesting for our audience is that during your time at Bazaar Voice, the company was acquired, uh, acquired three other companies during the time you were there. Yeah. Right? How, uh, how were those processes of acquisition? <clears throat> It's interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, at the time, one of the companies, right when Bazaar Voice IPO'd, uh, there was another company called Power Reviews. Um, that were, you know, there were other competitors. They were the main competitor. Um, you know, the truth was, uh, you know, all of us were competing with Amazon, frankly. Mm-hmm. But anyways, Bizarre Voice IPO'd and then they acquired Power Reviews. Uh, and it was an attempt to combine the sort of two companies, you know, leading, you know, the, the ratings and review okay. uh, technology for, you know, all the stuff you can get on Amazon, questions mm-hmm. and answers, ratings and reviews. But Bizarre Voice um, provided that to, you know, all the other retailers except Amazon. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So they acquired power reviews so that we could all focus on going after Amazon and, and leveling the playing field for all the other retailers. It was just interesting because the Department of Justice came in mm-hmm. and said, you know, hold up, that's a monopoly. Uh, and and because you're buying two companies? Because we bought power reviews, which they consider the main competitor in our space. And so ah, okay. they viewed okay. it as, you know, eliminating your only competitor. Mm-hmm. The problem is they defined the market way too narrow. They defined it as people who provide, you know, ratings and review white label software to retailers. That was not the market we were competing with. It was it was the Amazon that was taking yeah. over retail for everybody. Meanwhile, you know, other companies didn't have that technology. But anyways. Okay. That was a fascinating acquisition because, you know, ultimately Bizarre Voice lost the case. And, you know, okay. there were a lot of restrictions put on what Bizarre Voice could and couldn't do. Mm. Um, so that was an interesting um, a- acquisition. Um, you know, it's interesting because also, you know, for a long time, the folks at Power Reviews were sort of rivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then you brought... You know, there was a strategic decision to bring those two companies together. But then when you go down to the working teams, you have people who are sort of competing with each other, suddenly having to, you know, collaborate. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, more straightforward than you, you would think. It's just people getting along, talking, communicating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. How, how did those organizational changes and maybe also like culture clashes somehow? impact your day-to-day work and your team's work? Yeah. um, That's probably not a great example because, you know, after the acquisition, you know, within, I think it was months, uh, Mm -hmm. the DOJ kind of signaled um, they're taking a look at things. So things are Mm -hmm. sort of paused. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay. But, uh, yeah, so unfortunately, I don't think I have, you know, a lot of insight to share around mm. actually merging two companies yeah. together okay. in that way. Um, but mm. the other interesting story I had around acquisitions was um, when I was uh, at Bizarre Voice, we were tackling a problem that I remember when I when I took it on, I thought, well, this is easy. We'll, we'll solve it in like two days. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out to be one of the hardest problems I've ever attempted to solve. Mm. Um, and what it was is, so what Bizarre Voice did was um, – you know, if you go to a, a website, like we're here in Portugal, so if you go to Wharton and you look at a TV, a, a Samsung TV, you know, you want to see what other people think about it. You go look at the ratings and reviews mm-hmm. uh, to help you make a decision. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, Bizarre Voice creates software to allow companies like Wharton and others to have those reviews. And it seems simple. Oh, you just capture some text and let them pick, a you know, one to five stars and you're done. Mm-hmm. But there are things like, you know, are they fake reviews? You have to moderate the content, right. um, so on and so forth. There was also uh, a big offering that Bizarre Voice still has um, where, you know, Samsung might have their own website where they're collecting reviews. Mm-hmm. And often when a brand collects reviews, it's from people who love their products. They go to Samsung.com. Yeah. They don't usually buy their TV there, but they go there because they just love Samsung and they leave reviews. Right. So Samsung, the brand says, we have all these amazing reviews. Like, how do I get that into the Wharton site so that everyone going to see a Samsung TV will see mm-hmm. all these wonderful reviews? And yeah. so that was something we call syndication. So how do we get reviews from, you know, the brand site into mm-hmm. the different retailers? Yeah. 
So the problem I had to solve, which again, I say it and it sounds deceptively simple, is how do I know that the reviews on this product on Samsung is the same product that's being sold on Wharton? Mm -hmm. And so you would think, oh, there's like a UPC code. Like that mm -hmm. TV is UPC123 and their website says that, that product's 123 and there you go. Turns out it's not that simple. Turns out that these retailers list on their sites mm -hmm. don't have all that information or it's incorrect and it's called product okay. matching. It's taking products from one site and matching it to another. You have price comparison sites mm -hmm. that will look for the same product on Wharton's and, you know, um, you know, another site, Amazon, and try to compare prices. Yeah. But how do you know you're actually comparing the same product? So it mm -hmm. just, right. without mm -hmm. going down a rabbit hole, it yeah, turns yeah. out to be a very hard problem. Okay. Um, so hard, but it was such a core part of what Bizarre Voice did that, you know, we tried to build the team in-house and then we started looking at, you know, other companies, including startups mm -hmm. um, that were also tackling this. You know, okay. and it was interesting because it was my first experience, you know, analyzing a company with the intent of acquiring them somewhat for the technology, but, you know, a lot of it just for the talent. Mm -hmm. um, and it was actually very empowering for me because, you know, at the time... Um, this is earlier in my career, Bizarre Voice, but, you know, I'm still becoming a product manager myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but to be entrusted with analyzing a company that could possibly be acquired for, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars right. um, uh, was kind of shocking to me. Uh, and oftentimes, big I, weight on your shoulders. Big so. weight and almost a disbelief that, you know, I'm the person running the analysis. Um, and I remember there was a, my manager at the time, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's great when you have good managers who, you mm -hmm. know, just even little things that they do stick with you. But, yeah. you know, my manager at the time, I remember the acquisition ended up not working out. Uh, but he had told me, like, don't think that you made the wrong decision by taking the company down this route and doing the analysis. Even if it didn't work out, work out, you know, like uh, he was basically telling me, like, it was good to try and it was, you know. Just because it doesn't work out doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. Yeah. Um, right. But that, that resonated with me as well. But anyways, that, that story came up when you mentioned <laughs> acquisition. Right. Uh, so going back to the chronological path after Bizarre Voice and all those um, adventures in acquisitions and the DOJ yeah. and so on. Yes. Um, Everyone should get sued by the DOJ at least yeah. once in their PM class. <laughs> yeah. That's a, an experience. Yeah. yeah. Great. Um so yeah, as I was saying, after that, you landed a job at Facebook. That's right. How did that happen? <clears throat> Again, we were in Austin and we got we got the itch to, to try somewhere new, uh, which mm. seems to be a pattern. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know. So this digital nomadism was something. Yes, it's sort <laughs> of like. Pioneers in that a bit. So the digital nomad or like, you know, it was in a, like a family of four mm -hmm. or five with little kids. Yeah. So as nomadic as you can get, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we you know we had spent our time in Austin and it was great, but um, we just decided it was time for something new, and mm -hmm. uh, we set our sights on Seattle. So we started looking at opportunities in Seattle. By then, my confidence was growing uh, mm -hmm. in in being a PM, and I was a director of PM at Bizarre Voice, uh, but it was still you know medium sized startup. It was not a huge company. Um, um, I had kind of alluded to this earlier, but we were talking about there's no formal training in product management. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, when I was at trial pay, it was just sort of throw, you know, trial by fire. I just got thrown in and spent 20 yeah. hours on the tiniest PRD. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was enough to give me, you know, a, a little boost and keep going. Um, yeah. But I remember when I tried to apply for companies outside of trial pay, which was my first time doing product management, um, it was tough. And partly it's because you can product management at one company is not always the same. It usually is not the same as product management at another company. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so that was my first product management gig. And then trying to find another one, there were a bunch of places I interviewed at that didn't work out for me. Mm-hmm. And so I remember finding the book or someone pointing me, uh, but it was inspired by Marty Kagan. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least at the time, it was the only thing I've ever seen that was the closest to formal training. Um, I remember mm-hmm. reading it and, you know, it gave me a couple of frameworks to, to use and to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right after that, Mike, I was able to nail, frankly, all my interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's how I landed the job at Bizarre Voice. Um, So from trial pay to Bizarre Voice, that was the closest I ever got to formal training. But then by the time I was at Bizarre Voice, I had been doing product management, you know, uh, at my second company and a lot of different roles and growing and responsibility. Mm -hmm. Also, Uh, the companies you were were growing quite fast. Yes. I mean, I got Mm -hmm. to see Bizarre Voice go from small company, grow with it, saw through IPO, saw deal Mm -hmm. with a whole bunch of things. I you know, worked on different things when I was at Bizarre Voice. I got to work on things that, you know, wouldn't be typical, like evaluating an acquisition. Mm -hmm, Um, And, you know, my confidence was growing. And so when we set our sights on Seattle, you know, I started to look at some of the bigger companies. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the biggest company with with an office here that I can apply to? Uh, Basically, yes. And, uh, (laughs) you know, you know, until you work at Facebook or Google, it, they feel like these big companies that are kind of uh, unapproachable or, you mm-hmm. know, you know, the, where everyone wants to end up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say I've worked at Facebook and Google. They, they are awesome. It is awesome yeah. to work there. Nice. Um, but, uh, but anyways, that's, that's how I ended up at Facebook. It was moving to Seattle. Mm-hmm. Let's find a job. Let me set my sets. How by, that you were saying that, so they seem unapproachable for most people. How did you approach them? How did you manage to get so, an interview and to... Convinced no, them that I, you were the right person. After Oracle, every job I've gotten has been through networking. Right. Um, you know, when I was at Oracle, I went to Yahoo because my manager was there. And mm-hmm. I had actually spoken to my manager at Yahoo about giving me a, um, uh, a reference for another company. And he had said, well, why don't you come to work for Yahoo? Mm-hmm. So it was my, you know, old manager who got me the job at Yahoo. And then when I went from Yahoo to TrialPay, it was through the MIT network that, you know, I was found. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up at TrialPay. Right. TrialPay to Bizarre Voice, you know, funny enough, my wife was on a plane uh, from Austin going to California. And she mm-hmm. was sitting next to someone and struck up a conversation, turned out to be a recruiter for PMs mm-hmm. uh, at Bizarre Voice. And so she said, well, I, I have someone for you. And then that's how I got, you know, nice. my, my in there. And then... You know, going from Bizarre Voice to, to Facebook and to Google, um, at Google, I had, you know, a good friend that I had met at that very first company, mm-hmm. uh, Zeppelin, I worked at, and he put in an internal reference. Mm-hmm. At Facebook, um, there was, you know, another uh, friend and colleague who worked at Facebook ads, and he put in a reference for me. So it was through mm-hmm. those internal right. referrals. Um, the mm-hmm. way these companies work is they get 
thousands of resumes, you know, a week, maybe a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hard to sift through all those, but yeah. they're both, both these companies are very good at if someone internal to the company, um, Reference. Ref- refer someone, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily give them a leg up during the interview process, but it guarantees that they, they at least at get least looked at. Look, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so you can imagine you might apply to these companies and it's not that you're being rejected because your you know resume is not good enough you just might get lost in the shuffle mm-hmm. so you really should try to find someone inside yeah. to to refer and it just gives you a little bit of that edge but mm-hmm. that's how I got my interview at Facebook and Google right. um, I've I've helped a lot of people who wanted to interview for these companies mm-hmm. so I'm going to tell your audience the secret. Uh, to getting into these companies. Um, mm-hmm. And the secret is the, the, the magic, the magic, magic ingredient, yeah. magic ingredient mm-hmm. is uh, stop looking for a magic ingredient. Okay. And the reason I say that is there are a ton of people out there who say, we can get you a job at Google. We can get you at Facebook. I'll tell right. you how I got the job. I invested 40 to 60 hours preparing for both those interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I did everything from read Marty Kagan's book again and write down like notes and notes and notes of frameworks. And, you know, I went to Glassdoor and I um, went to the Google and Facebook reviews and you can actually filter down to um, interviews that, you know, for people who are interviewing for a PM job. Mm-hmm. And I read hundreds of those reviews and I wrote down the questions right. and thought about them and looked for patterns and figure mm-hmm. out, you know, how they were, uh, you know, how they kind of did their hiring. Yeah. I thought about questions that, you know, were typical, like what's a product you like and how would you change it? And I just prepared and I wrote all this down and mm-hmm. funny story, uh, you know, when I was at interviewing at Facebook, um, not accidentally, like on purpose, I had printed out all my notes. Um, by the time you take all those notes, you don't really need a printout, but I had printed out all my notes, uh, single sided. Um, sorry for the trees, but you know, I did it for a reason and it worked. Uh, and I had all of that in front of me when I was interviewing. And at the end of one of my interviews, um, I remember the interviewer looked at me and he's like, you know, what, what is that stack of paper? And so I said, oh, it's my notes. He's like, could I take a look at it? And I handed it to him and he rifled through it and he was amazed. Uh, mm-hmm. And I found out later he had rated me extremely high on their on their scale. Um, nice. But it wasn't fake notes. It's just, you know, it was mm-hmm. the preparation. Mm-hmm. But in any case, you know. So if someone is looking for a secret ingredient, maybe ask for your notes and get a copy you know, of I do. <laughs> I mean, I do have, I tend to. Do you sell them online? Uh, I'm happy to give them. I, I tend to have. Mm-hmm templates i make mm-hmm. anytime yeah. i do something and make a template in the off chance yeah. i have to do it again yeah but, but yeah overall what you're saying is you really have to put the hard work and actually know what you're doing you do. and know that you're good there's no secret and they are good at understanding if you're good or not so it is there's it, no going around it yeah and mm-hmm. they're very good at interviewing um i interview a ton of people uh you know uh for google ton of pms mm-hmm. um they're very good at interviewing and and they want to find people who will succeed for their, for that person's sake. Yeah. Um, but I just, you know, people ask me how I made it both to Facebook and Google, you know, at the same time. And it's just a lot of work and prep and, you know, that was it. There's no Mm -hmm. other secret. It's, it's not fun sometimes. I think you have to invest that much time, but you know, I I don't know if we'll, we'll get to the storytelling, but you Mm -hmm. know, uh, 
you look at my LinkedIn profile and you look at my like reviews people leave me, mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of them that talk about my storytelling ability. Right. Um, That's you know, also something magic that you secret need for the yeah. interviews. Right? Yeah, magic secret ingredient. Um, if people knew how much time I spent creating these slide decks, they would think it would be you know uh, maybe a bit crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the secret of my success. But, you know, telling a very good narrative takes much longer than people think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's the same thing. You have to put in the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rewards you get for doing so, like, are real. Yeah. Great. Actually, one of the previous guests of the podcast talked about it, that the message needs to be crystal clear whenever you're communicating. And sometimes it's a deck with just two or three words. That's right. But it took, like, a huge amount of time <laughs> that, building. That's exactly right. And, yeah, it's just three words. But yeah. yeah, the yeah. building the message and the story behind it. It's very it's true. Critical. Yeah. Great. Your path at at Facebook was relatively short. You then moved to to Google. That's right. Um, but how was your journey there? So my time at Facebook was, I'd say, mixed. So um, I joined Facebook and I joined. Uh, a team that was an acquisition from Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you join Facebook, everyone gets super excited because they get to work on the Facebook app. And, you know, mm-hmm. at the time, this was back in 17, 16, I've told you, no, 2015. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. But back then, you know, everyone used Facebook. That was the thing. And, uh, you know, you join Facebook and you're like, I'm going to work on the blue app. And then yeah. most people get pushed to ads, uh, which is how they make their money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was sort of like, okay, you're working on ads, you're not working on the main product. And so the product I joined was sort of a, you know, side project to even ads. So I felt very far removed from the main main Facebook experience. Mm. That said, it was my first, um, experience at a big company where, uh, you know, they took care of their employees. They had amazing perks. They paid really, really well. Mm -hmm. Um, but they got their money's worth. So, you know, Google pays really, really well. They get their money's worth. Um, mm-hmm. um, but it's an environment where it's very fast paced. You will learn a lot and you will get rewarded a lot, but it takes a lot. And you have to figure out how to strike that balance or mm-hmm. strike the balance or figure out, you know, how long you want to spend in that in that environment. Mm-hmm. But uh, Facebook, you know, was my first foray into that type of company and it was awesome to see it was you know every you know uh week there'd be a big all hands and mark zuckerberg would be would be there you know mm-hmm. talking so to see how a company like that like this works from the inside was quite amazing nice. um, product management at facebook and this is true for google as well um what I found the most interesting was being a PM at startups and, you know, Bizarre Voice and Trial Pay and all these other companies. You know, I was often doing UX mocks, you know, but I'm not a UX designer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing a lot of project management, you know, so, you know, helping the engineers understand what we need to build and why, but then creating the tickets and, you know, shepherding all that through. And you have to do that at these size companies. Mm-hmm. But at a company like Facebook, like they had project managers they had ux designers they had people to do data they had people to do research it was more clear the division of yes work. so you had mm-hmm. experts and it was like a super well-funded startup uh, and as a pm it you know let me focus on you know aspects of the job that i hadn't really had time for before 
Um, and it was interesting. Um, mm-hmm. The product I joined at uh, um, at Facebook, it was not really a big investment area for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of a defensive play a little bit um, against right. Google at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I left and then shortly after the, the product went away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up going to Google, um, fun fact about Google. So I interviewed, you know, both at Facebook and Google back in 2015, right. got into both, chose Facebook at the time, um, wasn't so happy at Facebook. Um, but it just so happened. The reason I, I jumped was Google, uh, recruiters called me. Mm-hmm. And said, "Hey, you know, would you are you happy at Facebook, and would you be interested in coming to Google? Mm-hmm. And because you already passed the interview, you don't have to take it again. Which again, it's like that person at Oracle who just made me feel special yeah. by not looking at my resume, mm-hmm. you know. But he they were playing the numbers game. But it, you know, it's it's sort of smart on the Google recruiter's point of view. Yeah, yeah. you already passed the bar and proven that mm-hmm. you know." Um, you know, you have the skill set to, to be there. So why re-interview again? Yeah. Um, so it was extremely easy. They just said, interview around, see if you can find a team. Yeah. Here is your your laptop. Yep. <laughs> so is on Monday. I'm like, well, what teams are there? And there mm-hmm. was, you know, one was virtual reality. The other one was a messaging app at the time called called Google Allo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just thought it was interesting. It was consumer facing. It wasn't, you know, ads or ads measurement. Mm-hmm. It was just... Uh, and they made it so easy. So that's that's how I transitioned from Facebook to Google. But even my time mm-hmm. at Facebook was really transformative. And I saw how a big company operates. I saw how they set goals. You know, mm-hmm. I saw how, you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg would, you know, align people every single week mm-hmm. at a grander scale than, you know, uh, than I've done. But yeah. you learn little bits from this. We were talking earlier, but every role you play, whether it's good or bad, whether you're there for a long time or not. There's always something you take away, even from the mm-hmm. bad environments, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you also learn from Mark Zuckerberg some of the um, storytelling skills or not that much? You know, um, I think so. I mean, my, my interactions, of course, were, uh, I call him Mark. We're on a first name basis. <laughs> um, uh, he doesn't know my name. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I, I mean, I didn't interact with him, mm-hmm. you know too much but you know what i what i was impressed from the way with, that he was communicating to the well, company that's right so when i was there there would be a news article about something uh, you know happening at facebook mm-hmm. but being inside the company those articles are sometimes true but often they're like partly true and partly like them attempting to fill in the blanks and it's mm-hmm. incorrect or right. taking something that's not truly there and you know, making it sound like it's something bad, not because the reporters have ill intent, but they just don't know all the details. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I was impressed with was, you know, when some of these emails would hit at one of these, you know, weekly meetings, Mark would talk about and calm the organization and say, here's what's really happening. And the media doesn't always portray it correctly, but it's okay. Like you have to know internally, you know, uh, what's true and what's not and mm-hmm. like stay true. Yeah. So that doesn't mean every scandal that's hit Facebook is, you know, not true, but it was very mm-hmm. interesting to see it from the inside yeah. and to see how the media doesn't always get it correct. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting is they started every single weekly meeting at Facebook with the whole company with very high production videos um, about a customer. And so it mm-hmm. would be a customer talking about how Facebook changed 
you know, their business. And they literally had a team that just churned out these videos every single week. It was a brand new video, but that's an example of at a grand scale, reminding everybody repeatedly about the mission and why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not that, I mean, I clearly it was powerful because I remember it to this day, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's one of those things where people may not even realize the effect it's having, but it has an effect. And he would dedicate, you know, five minutes out of 45 just to like hammer home that that message. Right. That's inspiring. Maybe a lot of the smaller companies, should also have something like that. Maybe not with a high, super high produced yeah. uh, video, but uh, keep reminding that the, the mission, mission and, and the having mission. everyone aligned on yeah. the same page. I mean, yeah. every company mm. is, you know, doing something valuable to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was at Facebook working on ads, to be honest, it wasn't the most interesting thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wanted to work on something consumer-facing. Yeah. I thought I was going to work on the Facebook app. But, you know, uh, one of the leaders there had said, um, like, imagine the internet. We have this amazing resource, but mm-hmm. every time you use it, you had to pay for it. Or you went to a website and you had to put in your credit card and pay a dollar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as we may not like advertising, like, it makes most of the internet free. Mm-hmm. And, but we have, we can, so advertising is not bad. It can be good, but ads that just pop up and take over, you know, your mm-hmm. screen that are ineffective don't help anybody. Yeah. So, you know, he found a way to find a mission, even in doing ads, which is you're helping mm-hmm. make this amazing resource free for the entire world. Yeah. Um, and so that fueled me for a year. Um, so that storytelling at all levels and even at, especially at a small company really mm-hmm. does make a difference. And no matter what you're doing, you're adding value to someone and you just have to articulate it. Uh, but it's, it's a powerful way to lead an organization. Right. And on the topic of leaders, who is the most inspiring leader you have met? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had mentioned, uh, you know, the, uh, the one at Zaplet. Manager Zaplet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another person who stood out to me, I was at Yahoo. Mm-hmm. Have uh, you told them that maybe they will be flattered for I, you telling you know, they're more more inspiring than <laughs> than Zuckerberg for you? I mean, you know, I uh, you know he was my manager from like 2000, like June 2000 to like maybe like February 2001, like six or seven months, mm-hmm. and then um, we never really stayed. I mean, you stayed a little bit in touch, but then like ten years later, I invited him to my wedding. Hmm. So, um, so I, I have told him that for sure. Nice. And, nice. Uh, and he, mm-hmm. you know, he was one of the few to get the, the wedding invite after uh-huh. 10 years of like being my manager for six months. Yeah. Um, right. but what, what yeah. made that person so special? You know, again, I think it was just, um, it's interesting because it's not, I was right out of college. It's not like I had had a lot of managers up until that point to say he's a good manager because these other ones have not been good. Mm-hmm. It was just something about his style that just struck me right away about that's how I want to lead, which mm-hmm. was straightforward. Yeah. You know, just treat people like adults, give them the information. It's, you know, breaking bad news. Of yeah. Empathy as well. Empathy. Like nobody wants to tell their team, we don't have money for raises. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could make something up or say, or oh, you're super valuable mm-hmm. and, you know, 
your contributions are valued. Yeah, don't sugarcoat. Don't sugar. All he said was, but understand what are their yeah. He said we don't have money for raises. It's I'm sure you guys aren't happy. I don't blame you. I wish I could say something different, but that's the state of the company. Yeah. Um, that said, like, you know, we do value you and I'm here to listen to any concerns you have. But I just mm-hmm. wanted to, you know, and it was just as straightforward as that. Yeah. And more often than not, like, people are fine with it. People there were fine with it. Like, great. Like, we, we're all smart people. We know how companies work. You have money coming in, money going out. And sometimes you have to, things are off balance. But mm-hmm. just treating people you know, like people. Right. What's uh, one achievement as a product manager or a product leader that you're most proud of? Yeah. I think the thing I'm most proud of um, are the teams that I've built. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can name for sure, like some of the, the things that I've done. For example, um, on Google Messages, you know, uh, we were able to get the U.S. carriers to to preload Google messages on all their Android phones. That was like multi-year crazy journey, um, you know, that's still unfolding as we speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are a lot of definite, you know, big achievements for me. The biggest ones would be the the teams that you... Yes. So the analogy I give is, you know, the, the golden goose and the golden egg. You know, my focus and my passion is on team building and, uh, you know, creating golden geese uh, that are really healthy and that will lay golden eggs for for eternity. For eternity, <laughs> ideally, yes, yes. Immortal mm. golden geese is, mm. is 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 my achievement. Yeah. Um, and it's it's tough because you know when you're running a business, you have mm-hmm. to hit milestones. Yeah. And sometimes you have to choose between, hey, I need the team to work late or you know uh, crazy hours for a month so we can hit a milestone, mm-hmm. but Often, more often than not, you know, Yahoo was like this. Them run away. For a year and a half, we were under crazy intense pressure to get something out. At Google, if I'm being honest, it happens all the time. It happens at Facebook. You're always under this intense pressure in tech mm-hmm. to deliver, deliver, deliver. And yes, things are fast. And yes, the pace is fast. But ultimately, there's always going to be more problems to solve. Mm-hmm. You know, startups are trying to find that one thing that they do well so they can IPO. But I remember a Bizarre Voice, we IPO'd and, you know, our CEO at the time said an IPO is just the first act. Um, the investors who would buy your shares are not buying shares for what you've done. They're buying shares in, in what you are about to do. Like what you've done proved to them that you're someone worth betting on. Mm-hmm. But a company has to find the next thing. So there's always another challenge to solve. Yeah. And what happens is a lot of these tech companies are so focused on pursuing the next golden egg that they, you know, destroy the health of their golden geese. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see in a lot of companies, you'll see waves of people leaving or, you know, people getting burnt out. Yeah. And it happens and people leave for personal reasons, lots mm-hmm. of reasons. But for me, it's really about investing in that team mm-hmm. and getting everyone fired up about the mission mm-hmm. and everyone feeling empowered and important in what they do. Yeah, I'm guessing this is a bit of the inherent culture of these big tech companies. Do you try to be like an umbrella to protect your team from that kind of extreme pressure? Is it something to a large like extent, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and it, it can be hard on a PM. Let's put it this way. 
as a product manager, you want the product to move forward and succeed. Mm-hmm. And and it's your job to uh, – so this is a – PM is a football player, American football player, mm-hmm. uh, to add another analogy. But you have to block and tackle. Mm-hmm. You have to get your you know star players focused on the roles that they are good at. Mm-hmm. And you have to block and tackle all the distractions or problems or everything else that comes in the way. Yeah. So it's not that your role is to be the umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, but you – that you almost always end up doing that because that's how you get your product to succeed and the team mm-hmm. to move forward. And also probably the thing that we were talking earlier that your job is a bit to make sure that the skills of each person in your team are being used in the best in the way right possible. Way. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I have my UX designer, you know, working with the user researcher coming up with new mock-ups that they want to test, like they don't need to know that You know, there's arguments happening right now about when we have to deliver something. Mm-hmm. So, but it's 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 interesting. So, how do you become an effective umbrella? It's not necessarily keep them in the dark mm-hmm. uh, uh, while this is going on. Because, for example, in that made up analogy, if the timeline moves up and you suddenly spring it on them, mm-hmm. uh, that can be equally you know uh, disruptive you know to your team. But what I often do is I'm very transparent with my teams. Um, even when I'm, you know, running was running the Google Messages org, I would tell the entire org, like, here are some of the challenges we're facing. Mm-hmm. Here are some of our partnerships and the challenges we're facing. You know, we have a team looking at it. We are tackling it, but just want you to be aware of it. So mm-hmm. it's not an umbrella. It's sort of everyone knows it's raining. And they mm-hmm. understand you're going to play this role to stop the rain for now, mm-hmm. but that they should know that it's storming outside. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a little bit different than just protecting the team. Yeah, It's building trust with the team, letting them know what's going on. But then everyone working together as a team to, you know, uh, split up the work in the right. most appropriate way. And often for the PM, that involves dealing with the ambiguity or dealing with the mm-hmm. problem and driving certainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as fast as you can for the team, but yeah. not keeping it from them, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but taking ownership of driving the certainty. Yeah, right. And talking about these challenges and maybe also about the dealing with ambiguity, um, you told me before that one of the biggest challenges, uh, I mean, some of the biggest challenges you faced is learning how to deal with ambiguity. How did you manage to deal with it yeah so uh dealing with ambiguity i think is the uh one of the things that a, a pm really has to develop comfort around mm-hmm. uh to grow in their career yeah. and do you think uh, sorry to interrupt but okay. how, how, how much of that do you think is innate and how much of that is learned um i think it can be learned because mm-hmm. uh I don't think I handled it well mm-hmm. uh, early on in my career, and I think I handle it well now. Um, so nice. I'm an example of someone who learned it. But, mm-hmm. you know, so the first thing is, what do I mean by ambiguity? You know, you can try your best to plan out everything to the most excruciating detail you can. But, you know, unless you're working on the most simplest of products, you're probably going to have a dependency on another team, Or, you know, a piece of technology that might come in late. 
You might be working with a partner who changes their demands, you know, last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though software engineers are good at what they do, like it's complex building software, they might run into an issue where things aren't working or there's some bug introduced. Mm-hmm. So it's just product development is inherently uh, there's ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, and we can go on and on and on, but, you know, uh, I'll give you COVID, for example. We had all, you know, grand plans planned out, but we did not plan for a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like, you yeah. know, shame on me, but we did not have that on our, on our, on our yeah. product bingo card. Um, so there's a lot of ambiguity. Um, and, uh, and so a product manager, again, it's their job to drive certainty for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, not shield everyone from it, but it's still yeah. their job to, to drive certainty. Right. Yeah. Um, but you're never going to get to 100% certain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I say I've learned how to deal with it is I've built enough products on enough com- teams, on enough different companies where um, I've seen all types of problems happen. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen that there's always a path forward. I don't think mm-hmm. I've been at a company yet where the team hasn't found some way forward in some way. Right. And it's gotten to a point where um, I just, to be honest, I just have faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I've reached a point where I have so much confidence in, you know, what I do and, and in, in team members, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and what people are capable of doing if, if they're all aligned and feeling excited and rallied. Like people are amazing. Uh, like my team amazes me every day, and you know, often it looks like I get credit as product manager, but I go out of my way to give the credit to the team where it's deserved. Mm-hmm. But it's, I just have so much confidence that if you have, have a healthy goose, golden goose, mm-hmm. you can keep laying those eggs. It may, you know, you may run into some challenges, but you can do it. And so, mm-hmm. right. you know, when I say it's learned dealing with ambiguity, I think it was the seeing enough patterns seeing things get problems that seem insurmountable get solved Mm -hmm. uh, and seeing teams, you know, come together and time and time again, solve challenges uh, that may be comfortable with ambiguity. So it doesn't mean I know how to stamp out ambiguity, Mm -hmm. but I'm more comfortable saying this stuff is ambiguous, but I can drive certainty here. Let me drive that. Yeah. And, you know, and be okay with this other part Mm -hmm. not being totally defined. Yeah. To the team, pass it the things that we have the most certainty on uh, but yeah, yeah. deal that, with right. the with the ambiguity yourself deal with the ambiguity yeah. and a lot of what i do is reassure the team yeah where i'll say look we don't have all of this worked out but we will solve it mm-hmm. and what i will say is underpinning all of what i talk about when i talk about storytelling and narrative building mm-hmm. and rallying teams and you know onboarding them about the mission um it all has to be authentic mm-hmm. um to work but like i truly believe it like i've seen you know if i say we're facing these problems we don't really know how it's going to be worked out but i'm confident we can do it i say it because i have to truly believe it yeah yeah but i truly believe it because i've seen enough of it mm-hmm. and i believe enough in, in in what teams can do that you know i, I truly believe it great all right let's uh, jump to to a topic which is quite ingrained in the work of a of a pm um we are reaching the the end of the episode so we'll try to go more to the point um so 
especially in your case that you've been working with at cutting edge technology companies like Google and Facebook, you're always on the forefront of human progress. What's one innovation you believe will come to life in the next, well, let's say, 10 years that you think the majority of people are not ready to see? I just read an article and I found out about it when everyone else did. I think it was a Google researcher who published a paper or contacted a newspaper about, you know, oh, our AI program has, you know, reached like consciousness mm. and, uh, you know, kind of a, a warning, like I, I think, you know, Terminator yeah. style, it's, it's mm. now alive. Uh, and I don't, Google is a huge place. I don't know yeah. all the stuff that happens. But he had released some transcripts of his conversations with this, you know, uh, artificial intelligence right. uh, and was asking questions like, do you have a soul and other things? And the answers were, you know, it was a little bit, I don't know if it's a yeah. sentient being, mm -hmm. but that could be interesting um, if that if that comes true. Right. So that's something, you know, I don't know if the world's ready for. Yeah. Um, let's let's go to, to that topic because... I, I'm really curious to understand your, your take on this. Do you fear innovation in any way? Um, I don't I don't fear innovation. Um, I think you could say worry. I worry about human nature hmm. and it's uh, and, and how it combines with innovation. So I'll give you an right. example. Um, I was a very early adopter of smartphones. Mm -hmm. So like Palm Pilots and then they morphed into trios, which, you know, were, were Palm Pilots with a giant antenna and they were sort of like mobile phones. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was a very early adopter and then the iPhone came out in 2007. Right. But before that, you know, nobody really looked at their phones except to make a call once in a while. Mm -hmm. And 2007, which is not that long ago, 15 years ago, now you go around, everybody, literally everybody's looking at their phone. Mm -hmm. uh, it's better here in Portugal, but like it still happens here. But mm -hmm. in the U.S., yeah. like literally everyone's looking at it, including like kids at this point. Yeah. Uh, so in 15 years, you have this technology that came about that has transformed the entire world where... Right. The entire world just lives on their phone and not is not really aware of what's happening around, mm -hmm. around the world. So I've had discussions about, oh, were smartphones bad? Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're bad because like innovation and technology, I think, is great. Mm -hmm. But you always have the positives and, and negatives. Yeah. It's they basically innovation or technology opens up more opportunities that yeah. can be used for good or bad. You have people running businesses on their mobile phones. Mm -hmm. You have people who have constant act like, you know, we think of yeah, a question. People that don't have access to education that can, can learn. Learn on a know, phone. Like, we, yeah. you know, I'll be with my kids and we'll be like, oh, what's the tallest mountain? Like two seconds on the phone, we have the answer. It's quite mm -hmm. amazing. So, you know, so we've, you know, I've had a discussion with people about our smartphones bad. Mm -hmm. I think they're great. And I think they enable some really amazing things. But then you add in human nature And there's some obsessiveness where we mm -hmm. all just look at our phones, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so when you talk about innovation, I think innovation in and of itself is amazing. As being someone who's super curious, it's amazing to see all the, the things that come out. Mm -hmm. But then I do worry about, you know, how it changes society. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. um, when dealing with ambiguity, I have the confidence and the faith. But I think That's it generally good, will work out. The right way. I don't think you can stop innovation, but I think being mm -hmm. aware of it and 
talking about it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and you even see that with smartphones. Mm-hmm. Like both Apple and Google in the last, I'd say, year or two, some of the innovations they talk about and highlight mm-hmm. are their, you know, screen time monitors and their, you know, uh, digital well-being initiatives that are a ton at Google now. Right. So, you mm-hmm. know, with that innovation, you know, there just mm-hmm. needs to be some awareness of the mm-hmm. potential negative downsides. Have you thought about the the metaverse? Uh, I mean, especially now with Facebook changing their name to, to Meta, you didn't. Yeah. It was after your time there, but there's a big thing about Facebook investing in this. And there's a yeah. belief from many people that will essentially live in the metaverse in, yeah. let's say, maybe 15 years from now, the same way that smartphones transform our way of living yeah. living maybe the metaverse will do the same did you think about this this topic you know um i did read snow crash so uh i'm well versed in the metaverse mm. uh but um you know some of my thoughts are on virtual reality that predated the metaverse announcement so it's not mm-hmm. it's not necessarily about the metaverse Right. But, you know, I remember I joined Facebook and um, and I was wondering at the time why they acquired um, Oculus. I think they acquired Oculus at the time. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering why would Facebook want to get into virtual reality? It didn't make sense to me. And I remember an orientation on the first day. Their, their uh, head of product was uh, giving a talk and talking about, you know, different mediums. And, and again, how the mission of Facebook was to connect people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really got me thinking about virtual reality. And, you know, an example I give is, you know, you, you hear some tragedy on the news, you know, uh, we talk about the, the war in Ukraine. Um, Mm -hmm. it's one thing to read the words on paper or maybe see video, but, you know, I always imagine like putting on a headset and you're literally standing where the reporter is looking around, seeing things, you know, or I talk about, we talk about, you know, I talked about travel and perspectives. Right. Um, there was a one virtual, virtual reality, mm-hmm. you know, again, virtual reality is super early. So yeah. the experiences are kind of basic, but one of them was you put on the headset and you're in the middle of a, you know, uh, uh, a home in the middle of Mongolia, uh, one of the yurts, mm-hmm. and, oops, <laughs> but you're, uh, at the home of one of the yurts and literally just turn your head and you see this traditional Mongolian family but right. you felt like you were there. And so I'm excited for, you know, this new way of, new possibilities. of gaining perspective and right. connecting and experience things viscerally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gets me really excited. It, you know, really made it made me want to actually go into and work on virtual reality. Right. But then mm-hmm. there's the downsides of, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not looking at your phone, is everyone going to have a headset and be constantly plugged into an online world? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I see my kids and they spend a ton of time in Minecraft building a world. Mm. It's super creative. It's amazing. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, I think they would spend all day in the virtual world and, yeah. you know, not yeah. as much time in the real world. And I don't know if that's good. Mm-hmm. So I have mixed right, feelings. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's up to us to, to decide what to apply the technology to. Yeah. But do you think this... Um, let's say the nat- natural selection of capitalism that chooses the best ideas or the ideas that people are most interested in is enough for us to go in the right direction? Do you think there's space for governments maybe to tap in and try to 
take action on this? I mean, like it has happened at big companies. Yeah. Um, I 100% believe in checks and balances. Um, as an example, you know, uh, when the telephone came out, um, you know, the government stepped in. Again, this is from a U.S. perspective because mm-hmm. uh, that's that's what I grew up yeah. learning. But mm-hmm. the government stepped in and and had to regulate the industry to make sure everybody had a phone number, you know, everybody had access. And so that's not necessarily just letting the free market decide mm-hmm. or letting companies just operate purely for profit. But I think that's the right thing to do because that technology should be accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, another example is number porting. So you had all these cell phone companies come out and you had a phone number, but now you were locked in and you couldn't move your number around. Right. That was the government coming in and doing number porting. Mm-hmm. Um, if we talk about privacy, you know, Europe is taking a huge lead on that. And this affects the things that we do with Google and mm-hmm. Facebook all, all the time. Um, but it's a check and balance. Like there are things that, you know, like people should have a right to delete their data uh, and, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but, a, but a right to privacy. Um, so, you know, I think there is a role for government to come in right. um, and regulate. I think free market is good to mm-hmm. help uh, give a signal on what should be developed. And people mm-hmm. who innovate should be rewarded for their innovation. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to have checks and balances. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing about human nature. Like, yeah. you know, you, you have to have a balance. Mm-hmm. Right. W- just to wrap up this topic of innovation, I think it's we could dive deeper, but let's not <laughs> spend the whole afternoon talking. Yeah. Um, what's the innovation that you hate the most? The innovation I hate the most, it's going to be an interesting answer mm-hmm. uh, because it's also an innovation that I think is great. Uh, right. which is, you know, it's called the internet. But but I'll, okay. I'll give you the, the context. In the U.S., there's a lot of political divisiveness. And, mm-hmm. you know, so much of it is because uh, the internet provides a platform to amplify voices, mm-hmm. um, whether they're telling... Wouldn't you say it's more social media than purely internet? You know, maybe it's social media is a mm-hmm. more specific example but it's it's a platform where anyone can Can suddenly amplify what they want to say and it's not just amplified it's not just say something and convince a lot of people about what you're saying and then they amplify it Mm -hmm. well that can go sideways as well you're still winning over hearts and minds but it's and it's it's a full fact that people say things and there are bots out there and there's other technology that people can use to manipulate and amplify things, uh, you know, uh, non-authentically. They're not actual amplifications, but they have mm-hmm. real repercussions. Yeah. And we were talking about checks and balances. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what the regulation is. You know, yeah. people talk about Facebook not pulling content down. And some of that is true. But, you know, I know from the inside it's a lot of content. It's not so simple to just moderate and pull things down, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at scale and quickly. Yeah. But, uh, but that, that innovation scares me. I'm glad mm-hmm. people have a voice. There's content creators yeah, who have never made great, great things, but also dangerous. That's downsides. the thing. Yes. Yeah. And so, and then we talked about innovation, there's positives mm-hmm. and there's negatives, but For that's sure. one thing that I, 
I don't mm-hmm. like because I think it's I think the world the entire world is still grappling with how to deal with it. When, when mm-hmm. I grew up, when I had to write a book report, you know, or some kind of report, I went to the encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, yeah. like kids can go to Wikipedia, which is public, but like where do you find information that you trust? Mm-hmm. Um, so that worries me. Yeah. Right. Um, now that we're reaching the end, uh, it's relevant to note that you were you are the only speaker of this season that didn't participate in the Product Weekend event that I told you before, um, which is an event aimed at helping young and aspiring PMs learn the ropes and also build their network around product. What's your take on the importance of networking as a PM? You know, everything from, you know, finding the next role. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, aside from my, you know, very first role at, at Zeppelin and eventually Oracle, every mm-hmm. other role was through some kind of networking. Yeah. Um, networking is important because, you know, all the stuff that I'm talking about that I've learned, I've learned over, you know, 20 something years of building products and 15 mm-hmm. something years of directly being a PM. Yeah. But, um, you know, you don't have to learn all these insights by going through 15 years. Um, it just, mm-hmm. that's how I got my learnings. Yeah. But the more you network and the more you, you know, talk to other PMs and other folks, you can pick up on a lot of these insights um, yeah. earlier. Um, you know, even at places like Google, they have a huge program of PM circles inside the company where right. groups share of PMs get together, practices. share mm-hmm. best practices. So yeah. um, they, they do it across these giant companies and they mm-hmm. will set up whole programs because they understand the value of it. Yeah. Um, so that right. in itself is a, is mm-hmm. a signal. And then I'd say the other thing about networking is just the practice of it. Because mm-hmm. so much of what I do now as a PM is less about the requirements. And, you know, there you, you will do that as a PM, but as you grow in your career path, it becomes much more about the org and people and making sure everyone's doing the right thing at the right time. Mm-hmm. And the ability to, like, connect with people and understand people and empathize with who, with who they are mm-hmm. um, really is that skill set you need. And so, so networking right. develops that. Right. And... If you were a, a speaker at the at the event, maybe you will in the future. Who knows? What topic would you like to to talk about? Yeah, so you know, I'm I'm particularly passionate about storytelling, and mm-hmm. um, we were talking about you yeah. know uh, what my next act is. So mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm still at Google, but I'm you know trying to figure out what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I mentor a lot of product managers. I manage a lot of product managers. Uh, the skill set that has served me the, the best and that mm-hmm. no one teaches is, you know, how to frame a story, how to create a narrative, and how to tell that story. Right. Um, and that's something I'm particularly good at after learning the hard way. Um and uh, and that's something I want to I want to teach the people. Mm-hmm. So you know, I can I can imagine. Giving right. many talks on, on the <laughs> importance of storytelling. The um, art of storytelling. The art of storytelling. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, just to wrap it up, if you could have coffee with any historical figure, um, 
dead or alive, who would you choose? And what would you ask them? Well, I'll just say I have a rule that if I, if you think too hard, then you're filtering your answers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's better to just say the first thing that comes to your yeah. mind. Um, but I think it? of folks like Benjamin Franklin uh, or uh, Leonardo da Vinci. And the reason I'm mm-hmm. drawn to them um, is because, you know, for me personally, for the longest time, um, I always felt or I would always knock myself for not sticking with things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a kid, I wanted to learn to play the guitar. So I'd pick up the guitar and I, you know, read all about it and dive deep into, you know, how it all works. And mm-hmm. I'd play and I'd start to get a sense of it. And then yeah. I'd sort of get bored and I'd move on. And to the next one. To the next one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, photography. I'm like, oh, you know, this looks like fun. So in my head, I'm going to dedicate myself and be like the most amazing photographer. And I literally read everything. I want to understand everything there is about it. Mm-hmm. Get the gear, like start taking pictures. And once I kind of get a sense of it, I kind of get bored and I move on. And so right. for the longest time, I always felt like, you know, why can't I stick with something? And partly a topic for another day, but there <laughs> are a whole bunch of books I read. Yeah. Uh, Actually, there's not a lot of books, but there's one or two I read where, you know, they help me understand this, which is, you know, with with the space race and um, sort of that technology uh, innovation that happened in like the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a shift from valuing people who are Renaissance people who knew little bits about everything. Yeah. And so it said, yeah, the generalists instead focusing uh, on those people who were like, Super the NASA engineers who can launch a rocket right. mm-hmm. to the specialist. That's right. So, um, you know, and that's – so there's nothing wrong. And, in fact, people who are generalists are actually highly valued. Benjamin Franklin, mm-hmm. Leonardo da Vinci. But, you know, just it happened that society shifted to these specialists who were, like, extremely good at one thing. Yeah. And so when I finally realized, you know, that that's just a societal, mm-hmm. you know, norm, it's, it's, it's – that, that's it. Then yeah. it let me be way more comfortable and actually appreciative of the fact that I have curious, curious about a lot of things and I like to learn about things. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, you know, I just really identify with those, uh, you know, well-regarded sort of Renaissance people. Right. So if I had to choose, maybe meet one of them and, mm-hmm. you know, nice. you know, ask them how, what makes them tick. Right. Right. I think that's probably one important thing for product managers. I mean, I would say probably there are exceptions. There are probably some products that you need to be specialized a bit. Yeah. But in general, being a generalist uh, is typically better for a product manager, right? Yeah. I mean, I haven't done a survey, <laughs> but uh, but it could be. I'm, mm. I'm a generalist. I, I do see how that's helpful yeah. in being a PM. Um, yeah, what I'm getting, like, just from this short uh, amount of people I've interviewed for the podcast, <laughs> all of them are super passionate about learning. That's yeah. one thing that's common yeah. across successful product managers. Maybe yeah. Leonardo da Vinci and Benjamin Franklin would, would have be, been good PMs. They would be good PMs, <laughs> I don't say. Yeah, right. Right, just to, to finish our conversation, what are your three favorite books or three books you'd recommend yeah okay uh there's one that i uh quote daily and i should Mm -hmm. 
frankly get a affiliate fee every time I <laughs> mention this book. Um, people probably have heard of it. It's called the Four Hour Work Week. Yeah, uh, right. I read it like 18 years ago, and it just left such a mark on me. I've had people read it, and if you take it for face value, you know it can be it can range from uh, I don't know if it's actually useful to oh you know the author's like a snake oil salesman and who works four hours but you know what he really does is just shake you out of everyday thinking and get you to think a different way um you know it, mm-hmm. a lot of what he talks about in terms of making big huge life decisions and getting paralyzed because there's something you're fearing but you know you never define what it is so one of his mm-hmm. exercises he calls fear setting which is just talking about what's the worst that can happen what's the likelihood that it could happen what you know, could you do if it happened? But for example, I went through that exercise, you know, with my family making a decision to move to Portugal. Mm-hmm. So like to this day, 18 years later, that book, you know, continues to resonate. So that's, right. that's the first one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. The second one is, uh, you know, talking about this idea of being a generalist um, mm-hmm. and that uh, it's okay to be a generalist. The book was refused to choose. Refused to choose. Refused to choose by Barbara right. Scher, S-H-E-R. Mm-hmm. And then there was another book by a different author called The Renaissance Soul. Um, But those books, you know, just had an impact on me because, um, again, I was curious and I love learning. And Mm -hmm. it turns out that's a great thing. Uh, So I'd say those two books, um, those three books. um, Right. Right. Um, What are your three favorite cities? I'd have to say Lisbon right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I really live here. That's also a common trait from all the people that came to the podcast so far. <laughs> Are they all, <laughs> all from here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's you know, top of the list, but mm. it, it should be if, I'm, you know, my whole family moved here. Yeah. Um, Seattle, actually, I, I love Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'd say, you know, the Bay Area, which is general because there's lots mm-hmm. of cities. Uh, I never actually lived in San Francisco. I lived in Palo Alto and all the... Right. But, you know, I could say right out of college, you know, graduating and wanting to work in tech. And I remember visiting California, driving down the street and seeing the giant Yahoo sign. You know, Mm -hmm. we talked briefly. I worked at Yahoo. But when I was at Yahoo, I bled purple is what they Mm -hmm. called it. I was I wore the Yahoo socks. I had the the (laughs) Yahoo bedsheets. Nice. you know, uh, everything was about Yahoo, but it was just so much nice. fun to drive down Silicon Valley and see all these companies that you use every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say Silicon Valley, Bay Area, right. um, Seattle, and, and of course, Lisbon. Right, right. Nice. And last but not least, what are your three favorite podcasts? Uh, do you listen to podcasts, first of all? I don't no, as much. Not that much. Uh, but I, Do you know the Tim Ferriss show? Uh, so that's that's the, telling of you know I love his book and mm-hmm. it's such a famous podcast but I don't listen yeah. to it. Part of right, it is okay. right. um, I tend to be more a, um, a reader, mm-hmm. so I'll read lots of books and different things. But uh, you know the the sitting and listening to audio, especially with two kids who are young yeah. kids, right. uh, it's hard to find time to sit down mm-hmm. and listen. Don't you have like commute time that you use? For? Um, to some degree, but uh, because of COVID, it's mm-hmm. been 
yeah. two to three years of right. my, my commute was wake up, go downstairs, sit, yeah, yeah, sit yeah. down. For sure. Yeah. All right. Um, so where can people find you online? Uh, even if it's just to check all yeah. these all these companies, maybe they got lost in the middle of the conversation. Yeah, no, so um, definitely, you know, connect connect with me on LinkedIn. Like I generally mm -hmm. accept connections. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's I think LinkedIn slash IN slash, you know, mm -hmm. my first name, last name, uh, right. Russian Gupta. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, um, I actually every now and then will post a LinkedIn like little tidbits I've learned about being a PM. Right. Um, and then, and then I'd say, stay tuned. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'm working on my second act and I, you know, uh, you know, if I, if I pursue something there, uh, that I hope will help product managers, you know, in their mm -hmm. paths, um, if I do something along those lines, you'll, you'll hear it on LinkedIn. Right. Nice. Maybe we'll end up working together. Let's yeah. See. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. It was great meeting you. We had a very long but super interesting conversation. Thanks for coming and see you next time. Yeah. Thank you for having me.